Shannon, we had so much fun when Alan Abel, uh, the former um, outstanding columnist with the Globe and Mail, was uh, with us a few weeks ago. We decided to invite him back. There's no better storyteller, and I assume we'll spend the entire program listening to Abel tell us stories about various things. Well, and listen, nobody loves the history of sports and loves politics better. And is there a better combination than sports and politics? Uh, I don't know of one. No, it's fantastic. Um, Less of us and more of him. Alan Abel joins us after these messages. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Yours truly, Bob McCown, with John Shannon over there. And um, our friend Alan Abel rejoins us and is, uh, for those of you not watching this episode, Abel apparently felt underdressed the last time he was on, so he, he got all dolled up here on uh, on a Monday, while Shannon yeah. and I are in our uh, backyard work clothes. You're very because you're my daughter has pajama day today. Yeah, uh, uh, you're very intimidating, Bob. You know, you scare the heck out of people. So I, I have no recollection of what I wore the last time you were on, Abel. But you might have worn a sports coat. I did. Oh, he didn't wear a three-piece suit. He does it. He did. Well, he does. He does own one, but it was from you know from 1978. So the you know flare collars and I can, see the, I can and, see the goodwill label on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> flare collars and uh, cuffs on the pants. Well, well, what's wrong with you two? Like you don't you don't think a suit should last 50 years? Okay, Mr. Travolta. At the very least, it should come back into Trump, style. There are only so many styles. I bet Trump has had lawsuits that lasted 50 years. Well, he may, he may be about oh. to get into one. See, we haven't brought his name up for at least four weeks on this show. At uh, least four weeks. I saw him almost every day for four years. Yeah, tell me about it. Well, not to jump on that bandwagon, but um, <laughs> does this guy wind up a free man the rest of his life, or do you think he's going to prison at some point? Oh, stop. Do I think he's going to prison? That's probably unlikely. Uh, do I think he's in for some messy times in the Southern District of New York State? Probably. Yeah. Uh, if it's in the political interest of those prosecutors to do that. And it probably is, uh, especially if any of his family decide to get into New York State politics. Well, but, and especially... go to prison? No, I think if Ford pardoned Nixon, I think at some point Kamala Harris or... Lara Trump or whoever the next president is in a few years pardons Donald Trump, I think. But that's... Re- hold on, really? Back. Really? Wow. Yeah, I think the precedent was set by Gerald Ford when he gave Nixon a blanket pardon, though Nixon hadn't been charged with any crimes at all. That's right. And said, no, this guy's not... I don't think the spectacle of Trump behind bars is a necessary one in his late 70s. I don't disagree with that necessarily. He even pardoned, uh, pardoned Kushner's father. Well, you said if it's it's in the in- political interest of um, of the, especially the people in um, in New York and around New York City, and you would know that that is a very democratic region. Well, uh, the state of Georgia is supposedly investigating his conduct in 
appealing for election fraud there or whatever he told the governor there, Kemp just find me the votes, um, which is sort of a Richard Daly, Joe Kennedy kind of conversation. But no reason to think that the people in Georgia, the state legislature in Georgia want to see Trump in prison. But that's a discussion for another day. Well, perhaps. I'll, I'll, the only thing I will say is that the, um, um, the majority of the ruling parties traditionally and currently in Georgia are Republicans. And I don't know how that will play into the... Well, they just elected two Democratic senators. Well, I get that. But the governor's a, the governor's a Republican. And uh, whether he... And the court system, I would think. I'm no expert on the Georgia state judiciary, but I would think that's mostly Republican appointees. Well, it's been a Repu Republican stronghold for uh, decades. Okay, then, enough of face the nation here. Here we go. Come on. Um, you went to Yankee Stadium for uh, the opening series against last, the last Sunday Blue Jays. Yeah, and uh, I was with a fellow who'd never been been up there, and he wanted to make a pilgrimage, so we went to Monument Park and looked around the, looked around the place. And it's uh, the place I started going to. My first game there was 1958, but of course that's not the there that's there. No, it's up to next door. It's a, it's a mock-up of it, but it's effective, and the monuments are still there, though. I think they've cheapened Monument Park. I, I, don't, I think you're equating their Babe Ruth with Tino Martinez or vice, vice versa. And Paul O'Neill, are, are these legends worthy of Garrick Ruth and DiMaggio? But it sells, and it's... Uh, that, that, that's an interest that's an interesting question because um gen generations measure legends um and th those of us that are a little older you know b because we remember back you, you know i mean this is this is like the famous line about uh when kennedy was shot and somebody turns and says ted kennedy was shot you know they they uh it's all relative to the generation you live in. So for Paul O'Neill and, and uh, Edgar Martinez were great Yankees to a guy that's 27 or, or, or 34. Yeah, you didn't see Ruth play. You never saw Gehrig. No, I know. The that's first, right. The first three monuments were Ruth Gehrig and Miller Huggins. Who knows Miller Huggins? You know, the biggest plaque there is Steinbrenner. Is it really? I'm, shock I'm shocked. Yeah. With yeah. language that would come I mean, this, it's not a mystery that, that Trump uh, envied. There was an acolyte of Steinbrenner that he wished he had owned the Yankees. But it's like this, a great humanitarian, great sportsman, uh, obviously penned by, by George himself, and a plaque twice the size of even Pope John the 23rd. So um, he owned the building. He could put whatever he wanted on it. And there's even a permanent picture of Steinbrenner on the scoreboard that never goes away, the boss, with his picture on it. On the, video, on the video board? Yeah. If you own oh, wow. the place, do whatever you want. Yeah. Well, so, we, so we went, but well, the interesting thing was watching how they scatter. They listed a crowd at 11,000. There couldn't have been more than four or 5,000 people in the ballpark. And it's strange to look around and see eight people in section 422 and eight people in section 309 and 12 people. I think there were seven people in our section. And so you have the mask police the ushers, because it was so early in the season that they were still probably still expecting that the supervisors were looking at them, watching them. So they had a, a little sign they held up. One side was a picture of a face with a mask on it. And the other side said, please. But if you were eating, you don't have to wear a mask. 
So if you had a bag of peanuts, you could stretch that out for nine innings. And of course, to get in, you show either a vaccination card or you got COVID tested within a few hours before at a walk-in clinic. So theoretically, nobody in the ballpark is contagious anyway, but they still were enforcing the masks. Some of the concessions were open, some were closed. Sort of a strange experience, but not that strange if you went to early season ball games when there often were only 10,000 people in the center, mm. just that they were so spread out. It wasn't everybody got down close. I would imagine in a few weeks, once the ushers aren't afraid of being written up, that you'll be able to slip a guy at 10 or 20 and get, get to a better seat. But it was an interesting experience because otherwise it was just a ball game. You used the phrase, Abel, um, you didn't have to wear your mask when you were eating. Can you please explain to me how you would wear your mask when you were eating? You could slip food underneath it, I guess, somehow. One peanut at a time. It'd be more difficult with a hot dog. You can't. That's not an option. insert the food into your mouth and then replace the mask for the exhalations. When would have been... Well, I'm wondering when would have been the last time um, the New York Yankees played in front of 4,000 people at home. And you might have to go back to the early 70s when yeah. Steinbrenner bought the team from CBS. I think it was 73 George bought the team. And uh, at that point, the Yankees were a miserable lot. And New York basically paid no attention to them. Well, they their last pennant in that run was 64. And I think by 66, they finished last, Right, yeah. I believe. And I used to go whenever the Senators were in town because I was on the Washington Senators in Little League. So we'd go to the stadium to see the, the Nats, as they were called. Oh, and there were then, there would be nobody there. Unless it was a giveaway or a Sunday doubleheader. See, now you... The afternoon, Kansas City A's, Washington Senators. It might only have drawn six, five or 6,000. Yeah. See, now, now, you, now you, Alan, you've opened the door because we're going to hear for the 10 millionth time the fact that you played for the Senators as a boy and Bob... Little Bobby played for the Dodgers and he wore the Dodgers and the Dodgers and he became a Dodger fan and they were yellow. It wasn't blue. It was yellow. You know what I mean? We're going to hear that story again. Well, but you see, Abel is doing nothing more than justifying, um, you know, because I get asked, (laughs) you know, you didn't get asked. You just explained your relationship to uh, the senators. And it's the exact same reason why I became a Dodger fan. I was. Oh, no. Why? Was, why was it, Bob? Was, tell me. Tell me why. Well, because I, I, my first baseball team was the Dodgers. I had no idea who they were. I was six years old, and they, uh-huh. and that very, that very fall, they moved to Los Angeles. It's like being indoctrinated <laughs> into the Proud Boys. There's no difference. <laughs> I imagine. I imagine <laughs> this is online. That was on the field. Two years in left field. The little league never had a ball hit to me. So the last game went right through my legs. Did it really? Well, did they give you? Did they give you the error or? Uh, but no, he, I, I knew the score. The, uh, I don't think I ever hit the ball either. I seem to recall everyone either walked or struck out. You got the participation trophy, though. Alan Abel, well, second. 1959, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's, an, that's another edition of the, of the 70s and 80s. That's right, the participation award. So I have not been to, um, I guess, can you still call it the new Yankee Stadium? I guess you can. No, you there's can. only one Yankee Stadium. Well, no, but I mean, Yankee there was Stadium. one. There was well, no, but one it's, that was renovated it, many times, and then they built it, a new it's one. It's gone. Year. It's gone, Bob. Well, I haven't been to the one that's there now. I've been to, I went to the old one. Um, 
compare the two because you have been to both numerous times. Well, one is Yankee Stadium, one isn't. That's <laughs> so what's there now is some imposter. No, it's not an imposter. It's just a different edifice, but it has the monuments yeah. and it has the molding along the top. Um, obviously yeah. not the same, but it's just a modern 21st century stadium with 21st century beer prices. Hold on. The, the monuments aren't in the field of play anymore, though. No. <laughs> I mean, that was the... That was always well, the amazing thing. Center field was 461 to center field. That's right. I mean, that was always the amazing thing is I remember watching footage in the 60s of the ball going between the monuments and whoever was in center field, whether it was Mantle or, or the visiting team, having to go and, and try to dodge it and find the baseball. It was like... The, look, it, I doubt that happened very often. It was like street ball. Well, the, the Polo Grounds had a monument too to Eddie Grant, who had been a former Giant player who was killed in World War I. Um, there was a monument there. Mays' famous catch, he's to the right field side of the monument. But I think, I think Polo Grounds was 455 or maybe even longer than that. So did 461, you, so, you could put a herd of cattle out there. No one's going to hit the ball out there anyway. So, so Alan, you were at uh, the original Yankee Stadium. Uh, Ebbets Field? Ebbets Field once when I was seven. All I remember wow. is Emmett Kelly the Clown. No oh, he was there, was he? Yeah. It was wow. the la their last weekend. Oh. So Ebbetsfield and then the Polo Grounds. Which one did Polo Grounds uh, many times when the Mets were there? First and season. oh okay. So and but the, these places are iconic for a New York baseball fan. But they really weren't that big, were they? I mean they were they were under thirty five thousand seats. I the Yankee Stadium was Ebbets Field was under thirty five thousand. The Polo Grounds was more built almost for football. Right. It was a horseshoe. And that would have probably fit 55 or 6. And Yankee Stadium had crowds over 60,000. No, no, Yankee Stadium, I, I know. But I I, th I didn't realize the Polo Grounds was that big. I thought it was a smaller stadium as well. Was it built for the Giants? It was built in 1911. And almost the previous well, the stadium had burnt down. There was a stadium called the Polo Grounds. It burnt down. I think it caught fire on opening day in 1911. And they rebuilt it as a one of the new steel and concrete horseshoes. That mm. it started, I think, with Shy Park in Philadelphia. There, you know, there's uh, often talk. Trump used to talk about uh, he had a plan to build a stadium um, on the waterfront, didn't he? On the west side of Manhattan. Yeah, in Hudson Yards. Well, he there's a Trump city there now. He owned massive amounts of real estate uh, north of the Lincoln Tunnel along the Hudson River. They're, over, they're, over yeah, I, mean, I mean, the Giants are still playing in New Jersey. Um, is there, is there a sense that there'll ever be another football stadium in um, anywhere in the city? Why? I wouldn't think that would be the most productive. No. Source of revenue per per square oh, foot. Yeah. Building. How many times a year is that stadium used? Eight home games. Well, that'll be maybe nine home games. Couple of exhibition games. That's a lot. Well, I mean, let's face it. They, they, I mean, they were smart enough for the football teams, at least to play together, right? I mean, uh, the double home made so much more sense than having one one team play at one stadium on one side of the city and one play on the other. And still, it's only used twenty five times a year. Yeah, yeah. A couple of college football teams. Uh, not to dwell on New York sports, but. Um... 
a sort of a revitalization of the New York Knicks. I mean, not to the point where anybody thinks they're a championship team, but at least they're respectable. And it has been, my God, a long time since they were respectable. Knicks basketball was a big, big, big thing. Um, I mean, I don't know how far I think it still is, Bob. I really do. I really do. I really think it is still. I'm not interested in what you think. Well, how far back do you want to go? Because when I was a kid, it was nothing. When I was a kid, they played NBA doubleheaders. Yeah, but that was the whole league. And the Knicks would play the second game. First well, I'll game give you be, that. I first mean, game will be Rochester and Philadelphia, the Warriors and the Royals. Second game will be this Syracuse and the Knicks. Yeah. Sometimes the first game was the Globetrotters. We go for doubleheaders. But compared to college basketball, the NBA was was far distant second in New York. Well, we also understand that, you know, um, when Larry O'Brien was the commissioner of the NBA in the late 70s, uh, this league was perilously close to folding. Days, days. Yeah, they were literally. They were, they were on the cusp. And it is, it's historically significant to suggest, and I don't know whether you would agree, Abel, that the arrival of... Um, Magic and Bird essentially saved that league. You agree? I mean, they were dying even after Willis Reed and the Knicks in 70. New York itself didn't save the league. No, no apparently they did not. I, I, I mean, I think when you looked at when you look at what went on in professional basketball through the 70s when we were children, um, and you were the, children, I was married. Yeah, but the, you were still a child, Alan. That's what she told you many times. Um, the uh, you know the competing league really th- threw them into a into a into a flux the because the, I covered the ABA. It was fun. The, the, the ABA played more fun basketball. They I mean, there was Pistol no Pistol Pete and Doctor J and the three point line and the red, white, and blue ball. Uh, it, yeah, I mean that's the one. I, I actually miss that ball. You do not. No, I do because on television you could you could see it better. That was the days of black and white television. You know, for for most people, color was. Yeah. You could get color TV, but a lot of people still watch them in black and white. You can see the ball better, which reminds me of something else. The National Football League has gone to a darker football. Have you noticed that, Abel? No, because my cataracts would prevent me from noticing the difference. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. Um, there is a procedure that you can get done that can assist with that in your advance. I had, I had it done last year. Then, oh, you, then, then you wear how, sunglasses. How's your vision now? I had it done by the guy who wrote the textbook. Johns Hopkins, the leading eye surgeon in the of world. Of course you did. Why, why would him, you go to some guy on a street corner, right? When you got connections. But, and I said to him, have you ever done this before? <laughs> and he said, you'll be the fourth. First three didn't go well. I said, we've got a weekend. Could you at least read the textbook? And he came in for the surgery on Monday. He said, I didn't have time to read the textbook. But I watched a video. You should be fine. <laughs> and one goes from nearsighted to farsighted in a few minutes and that is True. Yeah. that is extraordinarily unsettling did you have to did you have to trade in your glasses for another pair yeah you really did huh why, why, why? from nearsighted from taking glasses off to read but wearing them driving to not wearing them driving and putting them on to read and that's in in a flash it only takes 10 minutes the procedure only takes 10 minutes yeah that's all so so listen so we've been we've on the, we've, this guy does it. we've been talking oh, for yeah, about well, 20, the way he did it yeah 
We're talking for about 20 minutes and we talked Donald Trump and cataracts. This is great. This is really good. Well, go ahead. Take the- oh, something for younger viewers. <laughs> what, what is it? As a fair warning or what? Uh, <laughs> all right. Let's, let's discuss Pokemon then. Go ahead, John. Jump in. You, you, you must know more about Pokemon than I do, Bob. I know nothing about it. I, I, I get a phone call every six weeks from my son. Dad, did we really throw the Pokemon cards out? They're worth something today. Every, everything is allegedly worth something today. Yeah. Except the stuff I've got. <laughs> I just put all my stuff up for auction, going up for auction in June. Now, so what now? Like what? Mostly programs. Oh, yeah. Mostly programs, press pins, things like that. A uh, couple of what I'm told are rarities, a Negro League scorecard with a lot of autographs on it. Hall of Famers, but no one knows what something is worth. It's worth what I like to say. It's worth what one person will spend to prevent the other guy from getting it. That's the truth in that. That's uh, that's uh, that's in the Lipsy, Sparts, and Steiner economics uh, textbook. Uh, supply and, dealt, supply and demand. I was supply never a collector. I always thought, and I think most of my peers thought, that you're sitting with. Gretzky in the dressing room or Yogi Berra in the dressing room. You didn't finish your interview and then ask him to sign stuff. Uh, I knew only one writer who did and amassed a tremendous collection. But the rest of us, we thought, well, professionals don't do that. Yeah. And obviously spent lots of time with all the great sports, not, not just I, but all of us, sports journalists of that era. I spent a lot of time with, with Ali and Gretzky and Reggie Jackson. I never thought of saying, would you sign this? And in hindsight, I'm still, I'm not ashamed that I follow that, but it would have been, would have had a lot of stuff worth a lot more money. So if, if you and Bob could, we could fill in a week of you two talking about Muhammad Ali. So let's remove Ali from the conversation. Who, I was talking about his brother, Rahman Ali. <laughs> who, thank you, Alan. By the way, Alan's going to be in Atlantic City for two weeks uh, starting uh, Thursday. Yeah, um, so... Who, uh, who, who, Trump Taj Mahal. <laughs> who other than Ali, uh, made an impact on you from the point of view of God, I, I, I wouldn't mind going back and talking to this guy more, or, or he made an impact, he made you think more. Is there somebody that jumps out? I think the somebodies are people who you wouldn't even know if I said their names. Um, boxers who didn't go very far um i think the whole enterprise is probably very different now um i never wrote about money contracts salary caps didn't write about drugs and suspension all that tried to write about personalities right and the most memorable personalities weren't necessarily the guy who was leading the league in goals or scoring or, or batting uh, but the fact that they had Baseball players especially seemed so ordinary physically and had made it to that level that they were just uh, perplexing to me because we all loved baseball. We all spent every minute playing baseball that we could. I remember talking to Rick Cerrone. Rick Cerrone was a catcher for the Blue Jays, later for Definitely. the Yankees. And he'd grown up, I think, in Newark, somewhere across the river in Jersey. And I remember asking him, were you at this certain, there was a famous doubleheader in 1961, the 4th of July, when the Tigers uh, were almost uh, leaving the Yankees in the pennant race, and there were 61,000 people. 
Were you at that game? Were you at Jim Bunning's perfect game at Shea Stadium? Were you at the 23-inning game at Shea? Were you at the game when Mays came back? And he said, I don't go to those games. I was playing baseball. And that's why I'm in the major leagues, and you're writing about it. <laughs> oh, interesting. What, what we tried to do is what these people did was completely public. Completely public enterprise. Go out in the ball, get everyone can see see you playing and we tried to find the personal within the public or the private within the public and probably always fail almost always fail remember going to see uh, lloyd mosby in california after he retired and he and i were always friendly i wouldn't say we were friends but we were friendly and we talked and i remember saying to him did i get it did i come even close to getting it right did i have any sense of what it was like to be doing what you guys did and he said you came closer than most of them, but no, you never knew. Nobody knew. Nobody knew whose mom was sick. Nobody knew who's had a fight with their wife that morning. Nobody knew. Mm. You knew what happened on the field. You didn't know it. It's impossible to know. I guess in a way it should be impossible. Yeah. But it was our job, our enterprise, was to try to make public what the fans in the stands couldn't see. And the people who let you do that, people who let you in weren't always the superstars. We got to take a break. We're going to come back. Alan Abel is uh, with us. We'll be back after these messages. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Bob McCowan, John Shannon, Alan Abel is uh, with us from uh, New York. Washington. Washington. Maryland. Maryland, somewhere. One of those states. Uh, it's only 49 others. Yeah, well, I can go through them if you like. Oh, um, we only have we only don't we don't have like that much time and you can't type google quick enough we have as much time as we want they, all they can do is cut us off well no no i people i i, I that's happened to me and i get fired you know so well, <laughs> the difference between you and me i guess isn't it uh, um, yeah, maybe so here's one for you best athlete you ever saw well, what's the obvious choice? Bo Jackson? Do you have to be a great athlete in more than one sport? Who's the member of the superstars, John? Sure. Brian Budd. Well, I remember it. Brian Budd. Brian Budd won, the, won it like won a super, couple times. He must, have, he must have been the greatest athlete I ever saw. I don't know. I saw Pele. Well, I saw a guy whose name we're not going to mention anymore. The greatest athlete? Do you remember? What was the first baseball strike? 81? Ooh, well, right. that wasn't it. Uh, wasn't that uh, wasn't that 81. black? Isn't that Black Monday? Isn't that eighty-one? Uh... Yeah, eighty-one. Anyway, Somehow, whatever. Somehow there was some team of Asian cricketers, I guess Indian or Pakistani cricketers, in Toronto, and someone contrived that the Blue Jays, some of their players, would try to hit the bowler, the cricket bowler, and that someone would pitch to the cricket batsman and see if they could hit big league pitching. And as I recall, and this is only 40 years ago, the cricketers couldn't touch a pitched baseball, not even close. But the Blue Jay hitters, which at that point would have been Rance Mullenix and Garth Orge and 
players like that hit the cricket bowlers deliveries all over the place. Hmm. And I always, and I think I mentioned Mullenix last time, because he was the guy who said to me, you know why we like you? Because the only one who wears a clean shirt every day. <laughs> but you looked at ordinary guys like that. I remember going, must've been on a road trip to Oakland and going to Fisherman's Wharf with Hector Torres, Bob Davis, and Mike Barlow. And again, these aren't men whose names nope. stand out in bronze in Cooperstown. But, and we were just four guys, same, all the same age, probably earning about the same amount of money in 1977 on the BART, going from Oakland to, to San Francisco, and thinking that these guys are major league ball players. And physically, none of them was especially imposing. Barlow was a tall guy. I think he became a coach at Syracuse. Might have played basketball there too. But these are my peers. We have a shared history, um, except that they are major league ball players. And the gap between them and me in terms of playing baseball was so extraordinary. Mm. Yet they were physically unprepossessing. It's, it's interesting you say that because you, you, you struck two things, Alan, because in, in my time, um, I, used to, I used to pal around and go out to dinner on the road. Heck, even, even on off nights, uh, whatever city I was living in, with players. Uh, and, and, and we used to make around the same amount of money. So the, and, and in this day and age, and particularly in COVID now, we only see players or talk to players electronically. Um, and I'm well, not that's sure. A I, case. That, that's, yeah, yeah. that's an anomaly. But I, but, when I, when but I, leaves, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that uh, we would ever, ever go out to dinner with a player again. When I covered the Leafs. If I was the first guy in the coffee shop at Swingo's Hotel in Cleveland, <laughs> or or in Minneapolis, whatever Leaf player came down first would sit with me. Yeah, you couldn't imagine that now. No, I would no. think the generation that covered pro sports before me the Jimmy Cannons and the Scott Youngs earned more money than the players did. Probably. Probably the most. And then, of course, the teams paid their transportation. But People that forget that, huh? Three, People forget that. Year and hour, three Blue Jays, and one of the writers gets on the bar in Oakland and goes to San Francisco to eat. Yeah. <laughs> so refresh, Abel, refresh my memory. Did you go to spring training in 77 with the Blue Jays? No, I just, I just came to Toronto in February, and uh, two other guys had gone. I went 78 and onward. But I have, I covered the first game, the snow game. Yeah. Because uh, that that year, um, everybody stayed at the Countryside Ramada Inn. On Route 19, right? Correct. Um, which was a crummy little kind of hotel motel with one restaurant, which was also the bar. And the players all stayed there, all of them. And the media stayed there all of them and the manager and the coaching staff stayed there all of them and so at night there was only one place to go and essentially what what, what happened was everybody kind of got divided up at least at the beginning of the night so the coaches would be over here and the players would be over there and the media would be somewhere else well within half an hour everybody was kind of together and it was an intriguing thing because you 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 actually got to know these guys in a way that never happened after that second year by that point there were maybe 
15 or 20 players still staying at the hotel. The, the rest were off. They'd gotten apartments or condos mm-hmm. or rented houses or whatever. It was a very, very unique season. And I wondered whether you were there for that. The, uh, I, the divide was smaller then. That, that, I remember when, the, remember when the Blue Jays traded for Chris Chambliss? I do. Um, and somehow I went to his house in Upper Saddle River, New Jersey. Oh. I don't know how many reporters now go to ball players' houses, but um, I remember going to see Hartsfield at home in Alpharetta, Georgia. <clears throat> I guess it depends on access. Yeah. I guess that the, the network TV guys do. They'd be seen more as equals. But I don't think your average newspaper beat reporter, if there even are any anymore, go are invited to the all-star players' houses. I wouldn't think so. Uh, there was the word family wasn't mine, but I could tell you a lovely anecdote if you'd like to hear. Please. Uh, first year of the Blue Jays, I went on their first Western trip, which I think then was uh, Arlington and the three West Coast cities. And I did, for some reason, did a diary call just another day on the road about just the mundane activities that a ball team did on the bus or um, in the hotel or batting practice or just here we are on the road. And that winter, and it was a great success, probably did seven or eight columns in a row. And that winter, I thought, I'll do the same thing with the Leafs and went on a road trip to Cleveland with them, play the Barons. Mm-hmm. And Richfield, Ohio. And they were playing poker on the plane and Randy Carlisle had just been called up. And they're sitting, he playing with, I don't know who he was playing with, Mike Pellick or Palmatier, whoever else was in the poker game. And he had in his hand a fistful of American and Canadian $50 and $100 bills. And I described this scene. Uh, so I was taking notes of the scene. And thought, well, this will make a good installment of just another day on the road. Here's a kid, probably the first time he's ever had that much physical cash in his hand in his life. He's new, probably Gabby Boudreaux had probably just been called up and Randy Carlisle. (laughs) And got off the bus in the bowels of the arena in Richfield, Ohio. And Settler and McDonald walked up to me. And they said, uh, we saw you taking notes on the plane. And what what do you plan to do there? Like we were playing cards and there was money involved. What's your plan there? I said, well, I had done a series for the Globe and Mail last summer well, just another day on the road. And I thought I would do the Maple Leafs edition of that. And he said, we can't let you do that. Um, that's our private space. That's personal and private things that are going on there. That's not something that should be written about. And then McDonald said something I'll never forget. He said, you know, we like you. And we think that you could be a member of the Maple Leaf family for a long time. And I was 27, uh, had been in the quote, major leagues just a few months. And I had the physical copy of the story that was going to be faxed to the Globe and Mail. And uh, Sittler McDonald said, you know, if you want to be part of this and have our cooperation, maybe you should tear that up. And in front of them, I went. And McDonald said to me, if there's ever anything you ever need, just ask me whether that was a rite of initiation that other reporters had gone through that, that I don't know. Was it worth, imagine, I've told that story in journalism classes and they're appalled. Just appalled. Sure. Uh, would you trade 
a career of acceptance and access over one story that Randy Carlyle is amazed having so much cash in his hand? Absolutely. You Absolutely. Would. I would. You do the same thing I did? Yes. I don't know if I would. You know, I got to be honest. Well, you're thinking 2021. This is 1977. I would just started, Alan, 1977. That was my first year working at Hockey Night in Canada. And, and I was not uh, overawed by being in the same uh, basement of the Cleveland Arena with Landon McDonald. No, no, but it was, but it, but it was in, in the end. It was, it's a classic. I mean, heck, you live in Washington D.C. It's a classic case of tit for tat. I mean, the, the, there you was know, no that, quid pro quo. Well, no, but he he said if there's anything you need, if there's anything you need, so I mean, I'm I'm sure I I'm sure it went a long way. But I I think that that's isn't that a isn't that a a reality of day-to-day trade-offs when, when you do get things? Isn't that, doesn't know, that still happen? One? Yeah. You said you want me to tell us, you want another one? Yeah. Uh, yep. Third year of the Blue Jays. Remember Tom Buskey? Sure do. Sure. Right-handed big, pitcher. Uh, big hulking relief pitcher who'd been with the Yankees, which then was like a badge of, of exceptionalism. And so he was with the Blue Jays, probably not very happy about it. And it was an off day in Anaheim, and I was sitting with him by the pool to do a feature because he lived right on the riverbank next to Three Mile Island. So here's the, here's the feature, right? You're always looking for something interesting on and off day. So Buskey says, we need a new manager. This is the Jays' third year. Roy Hartsfield is still the manager. And Buskey says, we need a new manager. And I said, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. He said, write that down. Write that down. Put it in the story. We need a new manager. And I said, you understand like you've played in New York, you understand how newspapers work. If you if you permit me to write that, that's the story. I'm going to write that. It's going to be in the newspaper in Toronto tomorrow. And he said, write it down. Somebody's got to say it. So that was the lead, but that was the column that day. And uh, went down to the dressing room after the game in Anaheim. And the door was locked. And somebody came out. And said, "You're not allowed in because of what you did to Buskey." That was Roy Howell was the captain, the third baseman, Roy Howell. And he said, "You're no longer having access to this clubhouse because of what you did to Buskey. How could you do that? How could you misquote him? You never would have said anything like that." That was before the game. Before the game, um, the paper was already out. And after the game, I went down there again because, well, they didn't pay me to fly to California not to get quotes. And uh, looked at, peeped into the doorway, and Howell said, "Once of he said, Buskey told us that you gave him three chances to say he didn't want that in the paper. You gave him three chances, and nobody had ever, ever given anyone a second chance before. If there's ever anything you ever need, just ask us. And the next stop was Seattle. And I was standing probably near the batting cage and Tony Kubek came over and said, all the Mariner players are talking about as if you're the guy who gave a player a second chance. Wow. Right. And, and, and Alan, right? that's, I think that's part of the business, Alan. I really do. I, and I think, you know, I don't have as, as uh, dramatic a stories as that, but we've had situations. I had a referee in the national hockey league who was being castigated by the national hockey league head office come to me and say, I want to read this on the air on Hockey Night in Canada. 
I want to read it before the game. Will you give me the airtime to read it before the game? I read the article. I read the letter he was going to read on the air. I said, I'm not going to let you do it. Because I, you'll still have, you're going to have 10 more years of your career. I'm not going to let you ruin your career. Don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. Uh, that happens all the time in our business. And, and, and you, you, it, it, there's something more important at times, the human aspect of getting the scoop. There really well, is. More, you're talking about a career, but there are lots of, lots of reporters who would wear it as a badge of honor that he or she is barred from the Leafs room, barred from the Jays room. I don't know if they still go in the room at all, but there's another, another subspecies of sports reporters who are defiantly not part of it, don't want to be part of the family, yeah. and yeah. Uh, are looking for every scrap of dirt under the family's carpet. And it wasn't that I had always dreamed of being a member of the Maple Leafs family. No, not in any I, way. I, think, I, I think there's something to be said for being fair. Don't you? Well, that's why I'd be, I mean, I was only in my 20s then, of yeah. course. Yeah. I tried, I don't want to bring his name up again, but I tried to be fair to the 45th president. Uh, wow. I tried to be fair to anyone. I mean, fairness is a pretty fundamental concept. But not if you're, if you're a hard-charging editorialist, if you're a muckraker or a scandal uncoverer, uh, wow. then fairness, you may deem fairness to your reader or to the taxpayers more important than fairness to... <laughs> the junior senator from Montana. Hey, got to ask you a di difference between sports and, and, and Washington. Is there a difference? Sports, you'd have to say it's a different, what's the difference between covering sports in the seventies and eighties. Okay. And covering Washington in the 2010s. Okay. Uh, one tremendous difference that I found. Um, I remember when I came to Toronto, I thought if I'm covering the Leafs, and I have to go to the washroom and the Leafs score. No one's going to tell me what happened. No one in the press box. And it was exactly the opposite. It was a, mm. a spirit of collegiality, mm -hmm. of partnership, of how can I help? How can we help you? Uh, and I, I found, at least at my level, in the Capitol Hill and the White House press corps, exactly the opposite. It was grimly, bitterly, divisively yeah, I'm sure within at the top level, I'm sure the TV correspondents all were, were as collegial, not trading scoops with each other. But uh, I found it joyless. Um, I was in awe every day that I was in the Capitol Rotunda or in the White House briefing room. Um, not out of maybe I was raised with sappy patriotic values or something, or or Parliament Hill for that matter. I spent time in Parliament Hill. Here I am, a, a beneficiary of this system, and I'm right here. And I remember John McCain would always give me a wink because uh, I had been a park ranger where he had a houseboat in Arizona. And uh, well, here's the guy; he could have been president. Yeah. I remember I, I took my I took my daughter uh, Quick, first Alan. year when Trump was in office to take your child to work there. So I took her to the Rose Garden, and they invited the children of the press corps, which Obama's people never had done. And uh, as she went up to get the president's autograph, I said, tell the president that you were born in one of his father's apartment buildings. And uh, he looked at me, he said, must have been a great apartment. And I said, you should know your father sent you there to kill the roaches. <laughs> <laughs> we, we got, I, I mean, we... never mind that. 
<laughs> what's the difference? Um, quick, some quick. of it, uh, no, I'll give you an honest answer. When I first got to the Capitol, there's a, a little subway, a two-car subway that goes between the Capitol building and the Senate office buildings. And at lunchtime or at a break in Senate hearings, all the senators take that train out and they bring it back. So the reporters stand, 20, 30, 40, 60 of us, stand where that train stops by the little escalator that goes up to the Senate building. And in that way, it is exactly the same as covering sports. Mm -hmm. It is go to some Republican Senator, Mitch McConnell, right? Mitch McConnell says something about the farm bill. And the Republican says something, then you run to Chuck Schumer, everyone runs it. Did you hear what he said about the farm bill? <laughs> uh, which is no different from, did you hear what the shortstop said about the catcher? Right. Uh, in, that yeah. way. in that way, it was, it was scrum journalism. It was grab, beg for quotes. In that way, pretty much the same. And I was surprised at that. I thought, I didn't think that the Times and the Post and Politico and those and the networks begged for quotes the way someone from the National Post yeah. or would, would beg for quotes. But it was pretty much just chase them. Now it's hold up, hold up the recorder, hold up the phone, pray that they're going to say something interesting. In the same way that you'd go to the starting pitcher and pray that he says something interesting. Right. I hate to do this to you, but we, we're dead out of time. Uh, you know what this means? We got to bring you back again at some point. We, you don't got it. It's, well, we will, if you will. Uh, thank you, Mr. Abel. Uh, lovely to see you and talk to you again and uh, be well. Okay. Okay. I'll wear a jacket again too next time. Good. Boy. Good. Good. Alan Abel, back to wrap after this. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job, it's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Bob McCowan, John Shannon, uh, here to wrap it up again. Our thanks to Alan Abel for joining us. I could... Uh... I could sit and listen to Abel's stories all day, and Abel would, would take all day to tell all his stories. <laughs> we might have to do an Abel week. How's that? Abel week. I don't know. About on, the Bob, on the Bob Account podcast. I don't know. <laughs> uh, oh, he's great. You know, I, 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 Alan, Alan and I work together a lot. Hockey Night in Canada, Olympics. And uh, there, I, I think he's one of the greatest storytellers that has ever worked in Canada. I really uh, He's the best sports writer I've ever read. Yeah. And I and I and certainly in Canada, and um, with due respect to others, but um, he's as good as they get, folks. If you you know if you missed him, that's too bad. Yeah, uh, pick up one of his books, and you'll uh, get a sense of his skill with the written word. Uh, that'll do it for us. Hey, tomorrow, Bob. You know what we're gonna do? Quick. We're gonna dissect the trade deadline. We're gonna dissect it. Fantastic. We could have done that on Saturday. No, uh, it's good. changing every day. We'll see you next time. Goodbye, everybody.
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. 